Day in 1981, Rolling Stones album Tattoo You goes number one in the US. Largely down to the strength of uh, this song here. It's the 16th British and American, uh, 18th American studio album by the uh, rock band uh, Rolling Stones. Uh, Tattoo You is an album mainly composed of outtakes from previous recording sessions. And Chris Kimsey, who engineered this song, he recorded in the book, after they cut it, I said, that's bloody great, come and listen. But when I played it back, this song here started me out. Keith Richards said, nah, it sounds like something I've heard on the radio. Wipe yeah. it. <laughs> of course, I didn't, but he didn't really like it. Keith Richard loved reggae so much, and he really wanted this to be a reggae song, but that wasn't to be. Interesting, isn't it? There's some great stuff about Keith uh, Richard's experiences in um, Jamaica in his autobiography. That are, uh, it's, ah. a, it's, it's a great book. Is it a good read? Yeah, yeah. He uh, found all kinds of musos he really loved to jam with in Jamaica, stone- as you would. Are you a Stones fan? <laughs> oh, hell yeah, yeah. You- to be honest, I didn't like Tattoo You all that much, but I, I can just listen to them can for you? hours really? and hours and hours and hours. Stones fan, Palm Jeet? Oh, Wallace, you know my music interest. So that's a no. <laughs> yeah, all right. But for me, we talked about it's, it's the Beatles. Oh, I see what it? you mean. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love them too, but but I like Stones even more, especially Let It Bleed and um, uh, Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street. God, those but, were but great how, albums. How is that when Beatles is the better band? <laughs> no, 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 no I'm, just, I'm just being, as a fact, as a yeah. fact. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it says the man who thinks Toto's Africa is a song worth playing. I mean, Hello. we're just going to go round and round and round like a record here, right? uh, Wallace. <laughs> But you you seriously think that Rolling Stones is a better band than the Beatles? I I don't like awards for creativity, and I don't like <laughs> ranking, because yeah. I love them both. Okay. But if you push me, if you hold a gun to my head, Stones. Wow, wow. You're on the panel. RNZ National is 24 to 5. Historic event as the Queen's funeral commenced, watched by an estimated 4 billion people, as the event in London resonated around the globe. This was history before us, solemn, spectacular, intense, writes Sean Coglin for the BBC, who was inside Westminster Abbey. And as the procession of the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II moved through the Abbey, the funeral sentences began. That famous choral piece being one, Thou Knowest, Lord, the Secrets of a Heart, by Henry Purcell. Now, Tiffany Hardy is a New Zealander working and living in the UK who joined the thousands to watch it all on the big screen in Hyde Park. And Tiffany has kindly got up very early for us on the panel. Tiffany, kia ora. Welcome to the panel, RNZ National. Kia ora, Wallace. How's it going? Very, very well, thank you. To quote, we were watching something that we'd remember all our lives. That's what Sean Coggan writes. What do you think? Do you agree with that? Yes, I think so. I think I'll always sort of look back and think about the moment there in Hyde Park, everybody singing the national anthem and things. And how was it, from those around you who you may have talked to or you, you met, how was the atmosphere, the experience? 
It was really interesting, I thought, looking around because there were so many people there, but everybody was so quiet and did seem really sombre and really sad and just were watching the screen and listening. They weren't on their phones, they weren't chatting amongst themselves, they were just sitting there quietly looking at the big screen. What sense did you get from ordinary people around you outside that, I mean, we are seeing and hearing things, of course, through the lens of media, but you go into a store, a library, a cafe, at the office, what are people talking about? I think that people do feel a sense of loss and sort of the magnitude of it, even if they're not fans of the royals or royalists, they can sort of understand that, you know, she was around for such a long time and such a a big leader and an icon around the world that they do know that this is such a change and Mm. it's going to be so so different. Well, I would love to hear our audience uh, on this as well, uh, on their thoughts on the funeral we were watching last night, because here's what I thought, Palmjeet. I wasn't expecting to, but I was encaptured, I was enthralled, I was really moved. Mm. I was really, really moved by this extraordinary and significant moment. I don't know what it was. It was the sum of all things, actually including the music. Yeah, yeah. It was just something else, Palmjeet. Yeah, it was the protocol. They knew exactly what to do, when to do, and who is going to step in, who is going to move out, and what's going to happen next. And I thought having that kind of detail there from uh, things that, uh, you know, uh, when it was done in the past many, many years ago, to have that record and pull that out and able to manage it in in this manner, all the proceedings, I mean, it was just amazing. And I was looking at it, and I was thinking, you know, like... uh, even if you know um, you are rich, and even if a, the richest person in the world, I think will not be able to afford this because this comes with being the royal, being the queen, and that is that big difference. You know, we saw there. So, um, and uh, I really admire traditions. You were saying that so, you're a huge fan of pageantry. I, 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 I kind of, yeah, I liked what I saw last night. So I really like that. And um, to me, it was. Uh, yeah, so even the richest person in the world can't afford that. It, that huh. That's that's my view because that comes with being You're uh, you saying know, a, a queen. royal, the queen, and the service that she, the selfless uh, service that she delivered to the world. I would say, and it was that kind of gratitude that people felt in that you know, and the crowd, and also right. people those who were there. So we'll come uh, to, to we'll me. Come, yeah. We'll yeah. come to you, David. But I just want to come back to you, Tiffany, because you also we talked to Jen, she was a former RAF yesterday, who lined up for hours and the move, the, the queue, she found it was absolutely profound in her in her view. But you, you, you queued as well, didn't you? Yes, yes. It, I mean, the Brits love to queue. It's hmm. what they do. Sometimes they queue even when they don't need to queue. So <laughs> it just felt like <clears throat> it was something that we had to do. It was so well organised the mood in the queue, although it was very long, it was quite jovial before you actually got to Westminster Hall. And, you know, it was just sort of something that, that you felt you had to do. It, it, right. it actually felt like it went pretty fast, even though we, we oh, went okay. over 11 hours. <laughs> there was only really one <laughs> you, where we you, had to you, sit you, for about an hour. 
Someone says funeral, fantastic display of tradition and honour, uniting the country world post-COVID. It was the epitome of grace, dignity, humility, dedication. David? Oh, I like that. Uh, there's, you know, we have a need for solemnity and and, and we, we respond to it when, at the moments when we especially need it. it it's presented in this way and... and I've, I was thinking um, that over the, the long span of, of her reign, the, um, she came into a time when there was a lot of deference and remove, and, and I believe it's television that played the largest part in changing the kind of prevailing tone in society, much more informal, because it sort of it became apparent that you were getting into people's living room every night, and so you started reading the news in a more informal manner and, right. and everything that television done, does is in a more informal manner and so much of our life is now that there's a kind of a, a, a welcome for something a bit more subdued and removed okay. and, 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 and solemn and you know I think there was a general recognition that whatever you thought of her role she couldn't have done it better and, and, and so you're admiring that and the selflessness of it. And, and, mm. and, and so there are a lot of reasons for people who had, might in other ways, uh, other ways be, uh, have misgivings to say, well, I, I'm going to stand to admire this. No. I've, okay. I've, I've got to stand a couple of times you know, just as a tourist in Westminster Abbey. And both times I've been there, I, you, you, the sense of every damn thing that's happened there is, right. is so moving hey, and, and, and so affecting. And, and so when you see it, whenever there's an occasion like this and you see it again, you're, you're remembering everything mm-hmm. you, you felt standing there, and it's quite a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kia ora, David. Finally, uh, Tiffany, you know, it must be somewhat of a cathartic experience, I guess, coming down off that, uh, off that uh, funeral, the procession, uh, the lying in state. Um, is there a sense of life getting back uh, to normal? I know there's going to be a coronation uh, in what about a year's year's time? Yeah, that'll be interesting. And I mean, I guess that'll be so different because this was obviously quite a sad occasion. Although yeah. you did sort of feel like you were celebrating the Queen's life as well. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, we've had the ten days of mourning plus the the day that you actually found out that she died. I think things will start getting back to normal again. Um, you know, yesterday was, was quite interesting. Everything was closed, like most even little supermarkets that you sort of open all the time were closed. It was, it was more shut down than it is for Easter over here. So I think people will sort of start moving on and getting on with them. Yeah. I guess Charles what are you doing tomorrow, Tiffany? His- <laughs> <laughs> trying working, to pa- working, trying to pay for groceries and your power, <laughs> and your power bills. That's the second biggest uh, issue in uh, in the UK. That another time. For now, Tiffany Kiora, thank you for being with us here uh, on the panel in New Zealand. That's Tiffany Hardy there uh, in the UK live. Fifteen to five. The panel: Wallace, Rolling Stones in a different league. Beatles, nice pop. That's all, <laughs> says Simon. <laughs> okay, okay, and a Christchurch. This is interesting, this one, quarter to five, the panel. Uh, many of us have really fond memories, uh, including myself, actually, of the of the, uh, the, the post-school uh, music teacher. Of that guitar teacher, violin teacher, trombone teacher, we used to visit after school for a lesson with the art teacher who would make a special trip to class once a week. But according to the New Zealand Post-Primary Teachers, teachers Association, out-of-hours art teachers are severely underpaid and may cut and run if they don't see improvement. The union went so far 
as to call it exploitation and said they are considering taking legal action against the Ministry of Education. With us is the PPTA President, uh, Melanie Weber. Melanie, kia ora. Kia ora. Uh, that's really, I mean, that's, that's, a strong, <laughs> that's a strong statement to go so far as to call exploitation. Do you want to explain? Oh, well, I'm not sure how old you are, Wallace, but um, these teachers haven't had a pay increase since 2004. That's 18 years. 18 years since they had a pay okay. increase. And so they are currently being hugely underpaid. What was a decent wage in 2004 is now barely above minimum wage. And actually, we don't think that things are compliant with what's going on because they're only being paid for the time they're actually in front of the students. There's no preparation time being paid for, and you can't just rock up and teach. Um, so effectively, they are being paid less than minimum wage. There will be me- there will be thousands of people listening to this this afternoon, uh, mums, dads, uncles, grandparents who would have taken their uh, wee ones to uh, after hours art lessons or music school. Is there much awareness about this? I don't know that people are aware of this, mm. but we know what a huge difference these classes have made to so many people because what they do is make it accessible for people who can't afford private tuition to be able to experience the joy of learning an instrument or doing additional art. Um, we need to take care of these people because what's happening is they are not staying. We're losing them. So, Melanie, for this is Panjit here, Melanie. Um, so, for uh, for example, three hours of class uh, uh, per week, um, fifteen hours. What kind of prep time are we looking at, which is, which you think um, should be added to their hours? Well, generally, we look at about an hour prep for every lesson. So, so for per day, it would be like one lesson. So, one hour each day. So, if you had so if you had a, a lesson of an hour, you'd be wanting an hour's prep time. Hmm. All right, David. And Melanie, what kind of numbers of teachers are currently providing this? We think we've got about 848 of them, but we would like to have more. We want more music and arts for our students, and we don't want to be losing them. I'm just getting a sort of sense of the the possible greater budget for this. It, it, It wouldn't be killing, would it? It's not a huge amount. And it's, as we say, it's 18 years. We took them under our wing last year because they'd um, written a petition to Parliament, actually, raising the plight, and it was suggested that they needed some, some union representation to help amplify these issues. And yes. that's the sort of thing that we, we live for, is to make sure that we can have really great teachers in front of students. So now, out of ours, out of ours, arts teachers they're they're employed by school boards. So would this be taking a, b- a big issue for school boards because they'll be having to set the budgets as well? This is what needs to happen: is there needs to be funding that goes alongside this to make sure that schools are still able to offer it. But it's simply unacceptable to be saying that it's okay not to give someone a pay rise for eighteen years because we yes. can't afford it. Yes. That's right. And this this would be a situation countrywide, isn't it, Melanie? Not just one region. Oh, it's absolutely a countrywide issue. Hmm. And do you know what happened to that petition? Well, the petition went to the um, Education and Workforce Committee who suggested that they make contact with us. Um, we changed our constitution to be able to cover them and we're now advocating to at least get them up to the same level as adult and community education workers. Goodness gracious. All right. Kia ora, Melanie. That's uh, Melanie Weber there, the Post Primary Teachers Association, though. So 
if you're taking your, uh, your, your, your child to after hours art school or music school, do bear in mind the person that is teaching them has not had that pay rise for mm, 18 years. Beautiful. One might think that would have changed, but it hasn't. So I'm sure you'll be hearing uh, uh, more on that uh, in the media. Uh, on a very different topic, someone says the Beatles changed music gave Rolling Stones their first hit and the inspiration to write their own songs. Different bands, both good, but the Stones didn't change music. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> all right, David. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, we can talk about this uh, over a coffee after this or a spritzer. I can see you've got lots to say bring, on the issue. Bring Graham Reed on to talk about this. I mean, he's lectured about the Beatles. And he, no, really, he's great to yarn about music anytime and really, a really informed point of view. I th- you, sh- you must get him on okay. and find out about oh, this. Do. All right, very good. Thank you. David Slack and Palmjeet Pamar with me this afternoon on the panel. Now, it's magpie bombing, magpie dive bombing season again, and their sometimes notorious behaviour has become somewhat a talking point at the World Road Cycling Champs in Wollongong, 90 kilometres south of Sydney. A few years back, a 76-year-old... Oh, is, that you? Is, that your phone? is that your phone? Is that your phone, Palm G? Is that your phone? Whoa, it's a magpie. <laughs> Sound effect central. Very cool. Yes. Anyway, a man died when he was when he crashed after being dive bombed by a magpie. And there are instances of magpie behaviour here in New Zealand. My toddler is absolutely scared of him uh, scared of them when he was dive bombed while mm. eating his um, Marmite Sammies outside the Blockhouse Bay Library. Anyway, we've got an expert on this. Before we go to the expert, we have ten uh, year old Louis with us. Louis, welcome to the panel. Hello. How Hello, are, Louis. How are you this afternoon, Louis? Great, thank you. One, one, perhaps one of our more younger panel listeners, Louis, tell us about you and Magpies. Okay, so it, it was a scary story, but I'm sometimes petrified of Magpies. I get really scared of them sometimes. Yeah. They always chase up to you and like, attack you and that. Yes. Um, have you had an experience with a magpie, Louie? Yes, I have. Tell us about it. So I was at a BMX track in Glenlivet in Auckland, and I was going down a BMX hill, and I came around this turning around the BMX track, and I saw a magpie. I heard something flapping above my helmet. And I was wondering what that was, because I thought it was some kind of bird or something. And then I looked up behind me, and there I saw a magpie chasing me around the whole BMX course. It was quite distracting for me on my bike. I was getting worried about the magpie, and it kept chasing me. And then there was this little stand on the, sh- the roof of a house. And then when the magpie saw that, it flew over there and stayed there for the rest of the time. Oh, oh my goodness me. Glad you had a helmet, yeah. Louie. Mm-hmm. Louie, Louie, yeah. stay yep. listening to the panel, stay hooked on the panel, because we have someone to talk about it in, in 10 seconds' time. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Louie. Thanks for your um, extraordinary, horrific story about uh, the magpie there. And with us is Colin Muskelly, the Papa curator, bird expert, and founder of bird identification website NZ Birds Online. Colin, kia <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora, Wallace, how are you doing? 
<laughs> I'm very well, thank you, Glenlinus. Not too far from the good old bay where I live, and I can kind of relate to that, my little toddler. He tiptoes past whenever he sees a magpie. What do you make of this? Are they an aggressive bird? Oh, they definitely are, and and it's a bit of a perennial story that pops up around about this time each year. So that that gives us a bit of a clue. <laughs> it's a, a seasonal thing. It's so yeah, main, mainly when they they're nesting, they they get a bit oh. uh, territorial and and try and see off uh, what they see as a potential threat to their nesting site. What makes them dive bomb? Uh, well, that that's the behaviour they use to drive away predators. And you see that quite often, particularly with the uh, swamp harriers around uh, rural areas. Uh, harriers are the sort of arch enemy of, of magpies, and so you'll, you'll see the magpies diving at them, and, and they're just using that same behaviour to try and drive people away. Yeah, for me, uh, this is Palmjeet here. Uh, I um, it looks like I'm missing out um, on a lot of fun there. Need to do a bit more walking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> haven't had that experience. So <laughs> that's right, Colin. I've got yeah. a question for you. I've my impression. It's just an impression in the seaside village of Devonport is that we used to get monstered by magpies more than we are in in years past than these days, and we have a lot more tui around these days. And I'm wondering if they may have driven them away. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, people tend to give magpies a bit of a bad rap, but Tui are, are pretty aggressive birds, so that there oh. might be something in that. Uh, but I'm, I'm with Panjit. I, I don't get attacked at all, so I don't know if I've got some sort of aura that puts the magpies <laughs> on board. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed that I can't give a per- first-hand account of what's going on. <laughs> Oh, and in fact, we, we, we did have another question that Wallace raised too, because I had a sense that maybe it was true somebody had suggested that they light onto somebody and once they've identified them, they keep at them. And I had a sense one year of being you know, pursued by this damn magpie, not once, not twice, but many times. Any, any truth in that? Yeah, I, I have heard that, that story before. So, But whether it's just people who, who've got some sort of phobia and they're picking up on that or whether it's those kinds of personalities are the ones that tell you all about it, <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've certainly heard that, that account before that uh, some people seem to get picked on more than others. Now, you're, so you're an, you're, you're an expert uh, here and sort of, uh, Indigenous birds here. Uh, are there anything to worry about regarding the native ecosystem? Uh, yeah, interesting question that, that was looked into, oh, this is going back 20 years or more. So uh, Manaki Whenua Lanka Research looked into what happened at sites where magpies were controlled. Uh, I think it was in the Wairapa. And they actually found no significant difference in breeding success of native birds at sites with or without okay. magpie control. Mm. So, mm. so pretty much since then, um, they've fallen off the radar in terms of being of conservation concern. But they're, they're certainly a, a public health concern, particularly if they're uh, nesting near daycare centres and things like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so oh, that's that, in Australia, where they're, they're more abundant in urban areas in Australia. And of course, being protected over there, it's not quite so easy to just go out and pop them off.
<laughs> well, we can hear the wonderful magpie here. Uh, <laughs> thank you to Brad, the wonderful Brad in Wellington there. Um, very good, Colin Muskelly, very good to Papa Curator. Kua muta te hōtaka mō tēnei rā kia pai tō koutou pō. That is the show today. David Slake, Pamji Pumar, thank you so much for being with me. Got it. Thank you. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint next up. I'm back tomorrow, 3.45.